Hi and welcome to a new episode of Om Philosophers, Liv och Tankar, a part where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and by my side, as per usual, I have uh, Martin Jansson, uh, associate professor in theoretical philosophy uh, here at uh, uh, Lund University. Joining us today is Johan uh, van Bentham, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Amsterdam, uh, Henry Walgrave Stewart professor at Stanford University, and Jin Julin professor at Tsinghua University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, as one of our mission is to let our guests talk about their philosophical development, it might be a good idea to start from the very beginning and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts. Yes, uh, I think that's a heavy question um, because I don't know exactly what uh, philosophical thoughts are, but uh, I'm thinking... uh, when did I start thinking behind the things as you observe them? And I guess, at least in Plato's sense, that's a a very uh, philosophical thought. And uh, to me, I must say that uh, had to do with religion. So I was raised in a very strict Dutch Calvinist uh, uh, sense. As you probably know, uh, Calvinism is a a very intellectual religion, at least in its... Uh, some of its Dutch varieties that I was raised in. So you're forced to have, you start thinking about lots of things, whether they make sense or, um, uh, yeah, uh, what your own position is. And um, I'm afraid uh, the question that got me thinking was uh, rather an obvious one, uh, namely, uh, what happens to all those people uh, that were born before Christianity actually started, because that's, of course, the famous tension between a historical religion and what it says about salvation for everybody. And um, I must say, uh, this question, I puzzled and puzzled over it. Uh, I couldn't really find a good answer, but eventually my grandfather gave me a book of Calvinist theology. Uh, I must have been about 14, and that was the first very difficult book I tried to read and understand. And there was actually uh, an explanation there. Um, I'm not sure you want to hear it, Dutch Calvinism. Mm-hmm. I'm well, not sure either. <laughs> yes. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> well, uh, very briefly, Dutch Calvinism, <coughs> the book actually said that there are uh, three kinds of grace. So there is the grace you can get from, and grace you could think of as your ticket to eternal life. Um, One kind of grace is if indeed you convert to the right religion uh, as a person. Uh, The second kind of grace uh, has to do with the church to which you belong. But of course, neither of those two is going to save the Buddha or uh, all these other deserving people before Christianity. But then the book said that there was a third kind of grace, common grace. And common grace is what God feels for humanity in general just because he created them. And common grace could be the ticket on which all the deserving people who are not Christians get into heaven. And it would be sufficient on its own. And it would be sufficient on its own. And I must say, I didn't quite understand it, but it fascinated me that you could think in a sort of systematic way about uh, things that lie behind uh, the the facts as you see them. On the other hand, I must admit that um, 
this is heavy stuff. And this explains why, actually, in Dutch history, we seldom try to convert people to Dutch Calvinism because it was too complicated. <laughs> There's only a few historical instances where we tried. I see, I see. Okay, so uh, growing up, what, what kind of sort of uh, academic interests or oh, yeah. which way, way were you headed? Yeah. Well, I had a, uh, I could say... In my whole life, and that's up until now, uh, I, I had a sort of tension in the sense that I was attracted both to the humanities and to the sciences. So I liked more literary thinking and I liked mathematical thinking. And in some sense you could say uh, I've never been able to choose in my development uh, between these two sides. And eventually I found a niche as a logician <laughs> where I'm situated between the two. And philosophy is, of course, uh, an ideal place uh, for that. But more uh, specifically, um, well, I had a very strong experience in my student days. So I belonged to one of these students' groups that, that debate a lot. Of course, this was 1968, so you can imagine what we debated. This was, of course, largely politics, uh, the coming revolution, uh, the fact that the world was going to be a paradise if people listened to us students. And, uh, <clears throat> and one thing I noticed in those discussions was that I always lost. So the evening goes on heated discussion, you talk and talk, and at the end um, I would often be defending the opposite of what I started with. So I was particularly bad in discussions. And um, then another student took pity on me, uh, I still remember his name but it's not relevant here, um, and he said, Johan, there is this subject called logic and you should really read a little <laughs> book <laughs> and maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> Think a bit about your thinking. That will help you. Yeah. That will help you. And uh, the book which he recommended was actually an old book by Stanley Jeevens. It's an introduction to logic from the 19th century, British uh, logician. It was translated into Dutch because there was a popular series of very uh, high-quality, low-price books for general audience. Uh, the, sort of, uh, the series has disappeared because... Maybe, yeah, but uh, then it was a sort of boom. And I read that book and I was hooked. The fact that you could indeed think about your thinking, so that there's patterns in what you say, there's patterns in what you conclude. I think that's been the decisive experience. And I thought, I want to understand that world behind the thinking. All right. So what were you studying initially at university? When, when, did you when this happened, I was actually a student of physics. But this was for an entirely, and I also got my first degree in physics. This was for an entirely negative reason. Um, my teacher in school, given what I explained, right, that I had these uh, two interests, I didn't know what I actually wanted to study. And my teacher had said, physics is the hardest subject in the university. So if you just study that, you keep your brain at maximal capacity while you're trying to decide what you really want to do. <laughs> and that's how it happened to me. So did you keep your brain at the highest capacity during that time? In physics, yes, and even higher than I can understand now. For some reason, in, in some of the research that we do nowadays, mm. uh, we also encounter quantum mechanics because I'm interested in inf information dynamics, which is a topic uh, that will come up in the defense that we're, uh, we will have this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> information dynamics is usually communication between people, but it can also be measurement, so information you pick up through the environment. And then soon you're talking not just about ordinary measurement, but measurement in quantum mechanics. 
So recently I went back to my student lecture notes on quantum mechanics. From the 60s. From the 60s. And I must say, this was a very uh, depressing experience. Uh, I got a high grade on the... I don't understand it now. I got a very high grade. I don't understand why. And the text is full of little statements, like obvious. <laughs> and I wonder, what was that guy thinking? <laughs> it's definitely not me. <laughs> so, but uh, after your realization that there was such a thing as logic and that you yeah. could study it, you started taking philosophy courses? Yes. So then logic was taught in the philosophy department. Actually, by a Norwegian logician called Elsa Bart. I don't know if she's a name in Sweden, but Elsa was um, a student of Arne Ness in Oslo. So argumentation theory, that sort of philosophy. She wanted to learn more logic to also get a bit more of a mathematical underpinning. She was actually quite gifted uh, also technically. And so she went to Amsterdam to study with Beth. And Beth is actually my predecessor on the logic chair, which I used to hold in, in Amsterdam. So she studied with Beth, uh, she stayed in Holland and uh, was a very influential teacher of, uh, of logic. And then, you know, th there were more courses, of course, which, but, but it, it all started with an introduction taught by her. Oh, I see. So when did you start thinking that maybe this is a career or maybe I should pursue this as a, a PhD student at least? Or? It's not so easy to answer because my strongest memories of the early 70s are actually still the revolution, uh, everything that was going on, uh, demonstrations, uh, things like that. Uh, I wasn't as career <laughs> or, you know, even future oriented maybe as some students now. But <clears throat> what I did find was a, this phenomenon, which I guess you all know when you do research, uh, there would be questions that just bothered me. I'd like to understand the answer. And then uh, this is different from ordinary studying, right? So it's not just that you try to understand something because you have to give the answer at the exam. But there's a question that keeps you awake at night. Curiosity. Yeah, yeah. and there's this strange urge. Because yeah. why? <laughs> but you have to know. Yeah. And in my case, that was actually, again, a sort of connection thing. So I had already taken courses in modal logic, which is the subject that comes from philosophy. So the study of reasoning with necessity, possibility. So at least in its origins, it goes back to metaphysics. So that's a philosophically inspired subject. But what struck me at the time was that actually, even though modal logic was being developed separately, as I could see in the textbooks, it seemed to have a lot of features in common with classical logic, just the classical mathematical logic of Frege and, 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 and others. So I wanted to understand what's the connection. And that's actually what kept me thinking. If, if the development of subjects looks that close, then there has to be a systematic connection. And so I started finding results about that. For instance, a translation between modal logic and classical logic so that you can actually think in two ways. You can do modal reasoning, but under translation you can also see it as reasoning in classical predicate logic in the more Frigian style. And through that connection you can also see that results, things you know about classical logic, uh, can actually be uh, applied or translated into results about modal logic, and eventually also the other way around, things that have been discovered in modal logic mean something 
in classical logic. So that breaks the divide, right? the divide between, let's say, philosophical logic, modal logic, yeah. and mathematical logic. So, so the classical logic is, is first order? First order logic, yes. And, and modal logic is modal propositional? Yeah, modal propositional. Yeah. And so that became, the, uh, as I started finding more things, uh, that you know, then wouldn't be in textbooks, because those were different courses. Uh, that developed into the subject of my dissertation. Uh, you're associated with a, a theorem um, that connects sort of uh, a, a fragment of first-order logic with with uh, uh, modal logic. I mean, um, did, did you discover this during your PhD studies? Or? Yes. Uh. Oh, so I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned that. Uh, <laughs> do you mind if I tell my sons <laughs> that I met somebody? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <coughs> uh, yes, so, okay, the translation is one thing, but then uh, the next natural question is, uh, what it does is it actually uh, translates modal logic into a part of predicate logic, not all of this, uh, all of predicate logic, so that part is special. By the way, part doesn't mean less. This is, uh, I think, something people, even in logic, often... Uh, People in logic often think the bigger the better. But I think small is beautiful, so a small fragment <laughs> can be very beautiful because it has properties that the whole larger set doesn't have. And in particular, uh, what the modal smaller part has is this invariance for bisimulation. Bisimulation is a sort of invariance between uh, uh, the situations that modal logic talks about, which is in itself a philosophical topic. I think it's a sort of criterion of identity yeah. for when you consider different structures the same. Yeah. And that's of course so it's related to isomorphism. Isomorphism and, 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 and uh, things like that. So yeah, in the course of that, it, 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 you know, I, I, I thought of bisimulation as the right measure uh, for structure, equality of structure in a modal case, which it's not for first order logic, right? That needs isomorphism or something like that. And then, indeed, uh, the uh, yeah, the theorem at some stage <laughs> uh, uh, came up. Yeah, yeah, I see. So, um, so upon completing your 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 thesis on modal logic, then what kind of questions? So you, you mentioned that you had sort of these questions that kept you up at night. What what questions remained once you had finished your dissertation? Yes. Uh, the <coughs> well, the modal logic questions, uh, I, uh, of course, went on a little while because it, <coughs> you may have had the same experience. I, I find dissertation research can be so intense that you're a bit like a super tanker, right? So even after the defense, <laughs> there's some inertia, you keep going. So I, um <coughs> there were a number of further questions, uh, other f parts of modal logic, and which eventually uh, resulted in, in my book, Modal Logic and Classical Logic. Um, on the whole, in my life, uh, my students say that my books are usually a sign of struggle, namely to stop with the subject. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, so, so it's the... It's closure. Yeah, closure. It's closure, yes. And they also claim, by the way, that each book that I've written usually has a little chapter where you can predict the next thing that keeps <laughs> me awake. <laughs> and sometimes they have very clever theories. But I think in the modal logic case, that wasn't true. I was looking for or open to new topics. And 
what really started interesting me then was uh, natural language. Um, this was uh, because in the second half of the, the 70s, um, uh, there, there were a number of things happening at the same time. Uh, there was an influence of Montague grammar. So Montague, the logician, you could put it next to Chomsky, but uh, who made, uh, created a sort of formal semantics of natural language uh, in addition to, to, to Montague's grammars. Um, <clears throat> that was an influence. Some of our best students went that way. And often influence is not just what happens to yourself, mm. right? It's also, mm. uh, of course, uh, influenced by, by the, the best and brightest around you. And it also happened that, that some of the best uh, Dutch young students in those days were in linguistics. And in fact, a high school friend of mine had studied at MIT. He came back to Holland and he was interested in quantifiers and reasoning with... Uh, because what the, the linguists were absorbing then was an idea from Montague Grammar that uh, the data are not just which sentences are well formed, but which inferences are acceptable in natural language. The idea being that as you speak, it's also a matter of inferencing, right? Seeing, uh, drawing conclusions from what uh, the person says. And <clears throat> so I became interested in, um, in uh, generalized quantifiers. And uh, so all these expressions like all, some, most, enough, <laughs> uh, uh, very uh, common in natural language and what inferences they support in natural language. And in some sense, again, a sort of interface. Because as you probably know from philosophy, there is this so-called tension between formal philosophy and natural language philosophy. Right, so the, the logicians on the one side, which create their own systems, and the other one, on the other side, the, the, uh, let's say the, the Oxford School, um, natural language based. But what this new development offered was again a connection. Right, there was no obvious tension between natural. By the way, then you also have to give up, of course, an idea that I was taught as a philosophy student. So I was taught in the style of Russell and maybe um, Carnap that natural language was misleading and vague and it had all these problems. But the exciting thing was to discover that that wasn't true. It had its own structure. And in fact, logic was not the enemy or the competitor of natural language. No, in fact, logic could help see the structure that's there in natural language. So that gripped me. Yeah, yeah. And maybe the next 10 years I did largely natural language, uh, formal semantics, grammars, uh, things like that. I, see. I noticed that the, in the beginning of the 80s you wrote a book about the logic of time. There's another aspect of logic that you've been doing and I guess that's your most cited text as well to date. Yes, that's what they say. Uh, this is very common, by the way, that very often your most cited thing is uh, something accidental or on the side. I, I know several colleagues in logic who have the same experience. Mm. Um, yeah, in some sense, that was just a, a side project. Um, <coughs> was that connected to your interest in linguistics? Uh, yeah, it had some connection because <coughs> there were... Um, uh, I, I had been interested in time uh, just in the standard way, the way it's done in modal logic through temporal logics in the style of Arthur Pryor and, 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 and authors like that. And that had been completely enough for me. So I, I, I used to think of temporal logic as a sort of just sort of special case of modal logic. No, 
very special features. But then, as you say, through this linguistic influence, uh, you start thinking that this classical temporal logic is based on the idea of points of time. So the basic entities are durationless little no, not little, that's even the wrong word. Things, they're not even little because they have no extent. Right? So that's a huge scientific abstraction. So if you try to think about the, the, the time that's assumed in natural language, it seems to be built up out of periods or intervals, so rather little chunks of time. These chunks can be smaller or bigger. right? But even the now of natural language is not a point in time, it's a little... Yeah, I'm trying to draw it. This is already too big on my finger. And <clears throat> so then I became interested in, uh, can we also make that ontology of time precise? And that's what the book The Logic of Time is about. It develops that view of time, which uh, I thought was more adequate to natural language, but also to maybe our common sense thinking about what time is. But again, of course, by logical techniques. And... Yeah, the reason why that book came about is maybe also worth mentioning because it actually was just a set of lecture notes for a course I taught. But then we had a visit by Jaco Hintika from Helsinki in Holland. Those were, of course, grand events when the Scandinavian leader <laughs> of philosophical logic visited our country. And I still remember then uh, <coughs> Jaco would give short um, uh, slots to upcoming young people. And he was sitting in a tent somewhere. This was after a workshop. In a tent. In a tent yeah, we yeah. had a tent where we were drinking coffee and other things. And then I got 20 minutes to talk with him. Jakob believed in short appointments. Yeah. And uh, he said, young man, I've heard that you've written uh, uh, something, uh, lecture notes on temporal logic. Could I see them? Because he was an editor then for Synthes Library. And then a bit later I got a letter from him which was a bit intermediate between a suggestion and an order. <laughs> like, this could be turned into a book. Yeah. <laughs> so based on this, 20 minutes in the tent with Hintika. Yes, more people have that experience. Jaco could be very uh, influential and also decisive if he, if he wished. And of course it, it meant something, uh, especially since my earlier work had been more mathematical. This was, it, it's true, this was the, the first book a bit more on the philosophical side, and since, yeah, he thought it had some value. Yeah. Yeah. Evidently he was right, I guess, <laughs> in the end here, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, yes, and of course, uh, yeah, the, the, ever since those days, I, I, you know, I, I knew him until the, uh, the end of his life, uh, of course. Uh, uh, you asked what brings you into research. Of course, half of that is idea. The other half is the people, right? Getting drawn into a community. Yeah. And especially this nice process that there are these gods high above you who slowly turn into human beings, you know? So maybe they stand still, you rise. <laughs> but eventually, right, you make it into this uh, very pleasant community. community that That's a... And that has also influenced me a, a lot with, uh, you know, it, it's not just what bubbles up in yourself. Right. But he was one of those. He gods. was one of those, definitely. So, so who else was up there? Um, yes, I was uh, influenced by Hans Kamp, mm. this uh, Dutch uh, uh, logician, philosopher, linguist, whatever you want to call him. Uh, <coughs> Uh, Hans had done more work in temporal logic, but that's still, and in some ways I'm still 
grappling with uh, that work of his, John Barwise. Also, these are people I identify with, also John, because John too came from different backgrounds, so mathematical logician, but also philosopher working in philosophy departments. Um, yeah, and then uh, some of the linguists, uh, Barbara Partee, yeah. in, in, in the formal semantics, uh, was important to me at the time. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, the whole young community, of course, of people around me, that uh, uh, in Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, okay, so so after your sort of um, your work on more um, on linguistics and uh, topics con uh, connected with natural language, what, where do you turn then? Yes, the. Uh, the um, I keep saying yes because I like the idea in which... Uh, so the yes is just a, a, a point in conversation, right? So uh, uh, I'm still thinking uh, temporal intervals. <laughs> so the... Um, oh, although that's actually a very difficult um, issue in temporal logic, which philosophical issue, which comes back again and again, and which I must say I've never been able to solve. Uh, the dividing instant, maybe you know it from the Middle Ages. So the fire was burning, now it's out. What happened at the turning point? Was that the last moment that the fire was burning or the first moment that the fire was out? Now, that has been discussed a lot. It's a sort of metaphysical issue. Um, it, but it's come back in lots of ways. For instance, in AI, in knowledge representation, heated debates, as you can imagine, because <coughs> the people who think that there was a last moment of burning, of course, have a very low moral opinion of the people who think <laughs> that it's the first moment of being out. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's not discuss what your points and my yes mean. Maybe you conclude that's the last moment of the episode, and my yes is the <laughs> first one. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, I would say the turn then was towards uh, dynamics and action. And um, they, this was a bit in the air in the uh, 1980s too. So there again, you get these influences. Say, Peter Jadenforce here in Lund with his work on belief revision theory. Very important, this idea that acts of revising your beliefs or updating information are themselves things you can study and that have a structure. Mm. And um, <clears throat> But there's more, um, there was a lot in a similar vein going on in uh, computational linguistics and in other areas, uh, what developed into dynamic semantics and the Amsterdam style, the idea that meaning really resides in the information changes that are brought about in hearers and so on. <clears throat> and I became interested in that uh, maybe, uh, yeah, for general philosophical reason, maybe. So it suddenly struck me that <clears throat> there's a sort of bias, even in logic, towards what you might call products. So the distinction that occurred to me was between products and activities. So let's uh, take an example. Um, <clears throat> a statement is actually a sort of act. It's something that you do. But we use the word statement uh, interchangeably with sentence or proposition or something like that. But the sentence or the proposition is the content or maybe even the result of that act of stating something. You, you, you see no that product, distinction? Yeah. Same with proof. Often in natural language, these uh, words are actually ambiguous. Proof is an activity you can engage in. I can engage in proof. 
But then we use the word proof for a written sequence of sentences, one following from the other, which is just a code or something that, you know, a sort of record of the activity. So that struck me as a very pervasive duality. And it's so pervasive that, as I say in natural language, of course, many words, uh, you know, take the word dance. That is this both a noun and a verb, mm. right? It's something you can do, yeah. but it's something you produce by doing. And some languages, like Chinese, do that all over the place. It's even hard to make any uh, distinction. So it seemed to me that the activities were equally important. So, but that ties in with something you could also see in science, namely a move from statics to dynamics. So I think in, in physics, for instance, uh, when you think of Aristotelian physics, a lot of it is statics, like what is the, the natural place of objects? And what happened in the uh, 17th century is that it changed over to dynamics. It's movement and interactions between particles. That's the heart of physics, not where the things happen to be, no. if you, you see what I mean. And so it suddenly struck me that a move towards dynamics would be a sort of similar... I'm not using Copernican revolution because that term is so overused in philosophy. That some kind of revolution. For, some kind of... A small Dutch version of... Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, that, that would be uh, worth pursuing. So, and I've been doing that, you could say, ever since. Um, so the structure of these activities, once you see them, you see them everywhere. There's informational activities, there's activities that uh, talk about people's preferences. There's all sorts of uh, you know, activities. And in some sense, that's a hidden world behind the usual logical systems that we have. But... That world has structure, and you could actually make it part of logic. So you can bring them out, reason about them. What sort of product does this activity give you? What, um, and it also has its own laws of reasoning and so on. So to take a simple example again in, uh, in, in philosophy, say take epistemology. A lot of focus, like in Hintika's work, is on the verb to know. No is static. That's what I possess right now. Like in my jargon, that's no knowledge is actually some, having something in a very high class bank account where it's safe. Mm. Belief is an investment in an emerging economy. <laughs> <laughs> that could turn out to be wrong. But it's static. It's what I have right now. Mm. The counter verb for to know is to learn. To me, the logic of learning and knowing belong together. That's, it's very strange to do one without the other. And uh, I think that that has lots and lots of consequences. But uh, your move towards a more dynamic logic also means, I guess, uh, an expansion of a traditional notion of logic. Yes, yes, and that um, uh, yes, and that uh, actually uh, yes, it does, and that's controversial because I, I, I notice that many colleagues don't like that. Uh, you know, so so I get a whole sk uh, spectrum of responses. Like, what was good for, enough for Frege was good enough for us. <laughs> My answer to that is always: I wish I could speak with Frege directly instead of his uh, supporters, <laughs> because usually uh, the founders of a movement are much more open to new ideas <laughs> than the followers. Um, so some people think that this 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 is not a good idea, but. It's a, and in fact, a lot of what I see in philosophy of logic is actually also a sort of silent counter movement, because 
by asking again and again uh, what are the logical constants or things like that. You're basically just focusing on classical logical systems. So in a hidden way, that closes the agenda. Mm-hmm. And my counterclaim is always that the philosophy of a field should just be excited about as the field changes, shouldn't be exci- you be excited about new questions? <laughs> Say, if a philosopher of physics said, I, wa- I only want to talk about Newton or maybe also about Heisenberg, and then we close the agenda. Now the issue is, what is a physical notion? Nobody would take that seriously, right? You eagerly await what the wonderful new ideas the physicists are going to have. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was also in its later phases, a sort of break, uh, I remember with uh, my uh, Calvinist background, I must say, to close a circle a little bit, because in my current uh, interest in dynamics, uh, I'm very much interested in multi-agent interaction and social agency. Because if you think of language use, say, I explain dynamic semantics as uh, the information changes you, the speaker brings about and the hearer, but that treats the hearer as somewhat passive. In reality, of course, it goes both ways. Uh, I say certain things to the hearer, keeping in mind how the hearer is going to interpret me. The hearer interprets me, keeping in mind the habits of the speaker. Before you know it, they're on equal footing. So you're really in interactive social situations where everybody influences everybody else. And... Um, This is, of course, similar to the physics move. If you want to understand this cup, right, or or this electron, (coughs) find out what other electrons do, right? It's not just these internal properties, it's how its identity is partly in how it interacts with the others. So it's sort of like a social aspect of logic? Absolutely, yes. And so, uh, of course, I'll I'll get to Calvinism, but first, the social aspect is not that far-fetched, because... If you look at the history of logic, well, you probably know. Of course, we don't know how logic arose, right? The textbooks, of course, say something, but that's fairy tale history, right? Like, uh, uh, say, uh, Aristotle was thinking about philosophical argumentation, then he developed the syllogistic, whether that's true or not. Aristotle experts tell me it's very unlikely that that's why he had it, because he says a lot about actual discussion and debate. Uh, in, in, in his work, uh, to which it might be connected, could just as well be that syllogisms, say, were good moves in debate. So there's always been a sort of dialogical tradition in logic, side by side with this sort of standard inference view. So the fact that logic has something to do with patterns in debate, and of course debate is unthinkable without more people. Mm. So um, uh, definitely... I'm thinking partly that, 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 you know, taking that line more seriously. Now, if I made a tension with Calvinism, um, <clears throat> one thing I was taught by my parents was uh, the difference between horizontal and vertical. Yeah, I guess you guys are Lutherans. We Calvinists think of Lutherans as people who cannot take heavy Calvinism, so they have a sort of light, it's Calvinism light. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, and nowadays I would probably vote for it as much nicer, but in any case. So what I, my parents told me was, so there's the vertical life and the horizontal life. The, the horizontal life is the interactive social life. So horizontal means at the same plane, directed towards others. The vertical life has nothing to do with the others. It's you and God. 
just this vertical line. And the only line that matters is the vertical line. All the rest, what other people think about you, what you how you interact with other people, those are distractions. Right? They don't really matter for that. So I must say that at some stage when I went to, so this was maybe around 2000, a whole scale into this interactive uh, thinking that I did feel a little thing like <laughs> maybe the vertical line was still a bit like just mathematics and Plato's <laughs> heaven or something like that. Now I'm actually taking seriously the horizontal line. The horizontal plane. Mm. Well, of course, I now think, yeah, you can't deny that. That's so important. And, yeah. And I still expect a lot more to happen there um, <coughs> in this, uh, in, 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 in this inter because in a sense, we're just scratching the surface. Say, um, uh, there are, of course, lots of studies of social life Again, we're going to see examples this afternoon. There's lots of different mathematical theories. Uh, there's a whole set of things to understand uh, if you want there. And uh, yeah, eventually I think that could change logic. Mm. Well, extend its scope, let's mm. put it like that, because this is not against anything, uh, but uh, it could extend its scope. But it could also mean that, that we... Uh, I won't see that, but maybe the generation after me, that we're going to say deep results again, like Gödel's or others, that are going to show us, for instance, deep limitations of what can be achieved through interaction. Just as an example. And again, one analogy might be physics. If you think about quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle and so on, part of that theory is precisely what you cannot do. Right? Yeah. You cannot increase precision on all fronts. Uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, but I think of this as a sort of philosophy. I'm really thinking, well, this idea that through interaction we can get everything 100% clear at the same time maybe goes against deep principles of uncertainty, but then uncertainty in social interaction. I see. Um. Just in, in closing, uh, before we finish, uh, are those the kinds of things that keep you up at night currently? Or are there other topics that you currently think about and have that kind of curiosity towards that? You yes, well, <coughs> what uh, uh, maybe the topic that I find um, most uh, urgent and that indeed you know, I keep returning to um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about at night, but um, uh, is yeah, it has to do with this, but it, it's slightly different. So, um, <clears throat> as I said, once you study these, uh, so logic nowadays finds itself in a much bigger world, uh, I think, than uh, when it started in the foundational age with Frege. And in some sense, in the foundational age, I think what logic did then was actually retreat and uh, fortify itself in a neat little niche. For instance, take Freud's famous anti-psychologism. It's interesting historically that Frege is the same time of the emergence of modern psychology. If you want to put two German intellectual heroes side by side, you'd probably have to put Frege and Wundt, the father of modern psychology. 
Wundt also wrote about psychology of reasoning. Frege very neatly says, I have nothing to do with that, <laughs> right? I'm studying logic, what people do. And that seemed very reasonable. So as a philosophy student, I also had to learn what a good idea that was, not to worry about the facts <laughs> and only look about what's correct and so on. Nowadays, I've seen a sea change even among many colleagues. Now this actually seems intellectually stupid. Why close yourself into a small area when all these things are happening around you? It's more a sign of poverty than of strength. It was good at the time, because it probably gave us modern logic. So I'm, what I'm thinking about is often the larger world we live in. And then I see ourselves take this conversation as living in a sort of thin zone of conscious rationality. Okay, just my, my term. So we speak, you think about a question, I think about an answer, or maybe I don't because I'm speaking <laughs> freely. Um, okay, that's a situation that's under our control. And to some extent it's described by logic, linguistics, philosophy, also all these things where we actually you know, put this out, think about what we do. But that zone lies in between two areas uh, that are very different. Uh, one is, I mentioned the social life. So above us, we are part of this, this society, which well, there are flows of public opinion, there are large-scale processes and so on. A lot of the structures in that society are stable, but they don't come from logic, they come from statistics. Right? So, so a lot of the stability in what, uh, let's say, uh, uh, we were talking about running this philosophy department. Uh, why can you run a philosophy department? Because uh, there are certain statistical phenomena in what students choose. Mm. <laughs> so that, <laughs> right, maybe you're not aware of it, but, but that actually determines that, there, uh, that something like that can exist. So above us, there is this statistical world of social uh, structures and social phenomena. Many of them pretty blind. They don't even have to be driven by um, what we say in logic. Take an example, public opinion. Some of the best models for public opinion are just animal models. You copy more or less what the people around you think, just like fish that swim in the water. A very good way of swimming in a school is actually following yeah, a simple rule. You know, if your neighbor goes left, you go left. Small aside. I like this always because school of fish is stupid. School of philosophy is great. But it's interesting, the same word. <laughs> anyway, now, so above us, this world, based on statistics, hmm. not manipulable by us. I'm part of it. Okay. Inside me, but that's one part. Inside me, though, this thinking, I do this thinking in the brain. Okay, so as we're speaking, uh, somewhere inside these weird objects we call our heads, there is this gray matter. Well, it's great, I don't know, but you know, it's doing things. This is also statistics and out of your control, right? Some of the best models for the brain by now are statistical Boltzmann machines. Okay, never mind, but statistics. But this leads to huge questions. Where does this thin layer of rationality that we describe with our usual logic, philosophy, linguistics, how does that really interface with the statistical machinery that we have for actually carrying it out? And in the statistical world, where we actually have to act. Well, I don't know, but that keeps me awake. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it also pertains to something that I, I, I thought I, I wouldn't ask, but I, I will now. But the, 
sort of the importance of logic for the layman or someone who is not mathematically interested but is interested in, in good reasoning. So usually we tell our students that logic is part of argumentation theory and it will help you to make good arguments and so on. But it's modeled on mathematical reasoning and much non-mathematical reasoning is unlike, is non-deductive and... Uh... Uh, yes, yes, that's... Uh, <coughs> um, well, <coughs> it's something I, I, I do spend time on. Uh, uh, I agree, this is a serious question. Uh, I often try to make it a bit concrete. So, for instance, uh, at the moment, uh, I'm involved in initiatives with high schools. And then here's a very simple thought experiment. Suppose that you really had the power to introduce a logic course in high school. What would you really teach? Because now the question to you as a question of conscience is not cram as much standard logic into it as you can, but teach them something that would indeed be helpful to them. It would give you a responsibility. And uh, I don't have a definite answer to that, but I am thinking, uh, I'm even working on a, a little book in which I actually try to describe what's in logic that I would consider generally useful and that would be worth being part of general culture to such an extent that I think it should be teachable in high school. I see. That's uh, what, but it definitely wouldn't be just cram standard propositional or predicate logic mm. into their heads, because in that way you just train them into little exercise solvers mm. for very esoteric tasks. Right. That, uh, that way it doesn't work for them. But it's, um, <clears throat> but I'm also not pessimistic about it, because actually I do a wide range of things. So. Um, uh, I'm also, uh, I've been involved with a Dutch national project with children called Talent Power. So um, we've also been working with children, so around age four to six, when the reasoning ability is getting place. Mm -hmm. And you see the picture is diverse. So I only want to say, you said it's different from logic, but not totally. Those children can make logical inferences. It's just that they're packaged with a lot of other things. But when you let them do little games and so on, you will definitely also see very clear logical thinking. Right. Yeah. But, but logic is, uh, I, I mean, I'm a layman. It's not very, it, it's hard to, to get into as an outsider, you know. It's really, but, but uh, I found it... Well, but this is, as, uh, okay, so I think that it's often taught not quite in the right way. Hmm. Uh, uh, that, that is one thing. I actually think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now... But so, at least I do a lot of outreach and I'm trying to find out what, uh, how to cross that bridge. Um, uh, the, uh, for instance, uh, give an example, uh, next week I'm going to Zeeland in Middelburg in Holland. Mm. And there, there is a business community which actually organizes lectures on intellectual topics. I have a sort of tradition. That I always accept because it's a challenge. Now yeah. you have an audience whose presuppositions and background are going to be different. Yeah. And what I try to do is just involve them in a conversation about reasoning. Yeah. And 
it makes me somewhat optimistic. These sessions are often very interesting because you can get people to make the same move I described about myself. They start thinking about something which they do yeah. and never yeah. realized patterns. Yeah, these patterns. Yeah. So that's something you can get across. Of course, not by saying, let P be a proposition, let, uh, all these horrible things that we no. do in court. No, because that's the language you had to learn, I guess, you know, yeah, yeah, but you the, can do the, that. the formal part of the of logic. Yeah, but, but here I think there's something maybe in the history of logic which mm. has gone wrong. And uh, it's this. Somewhere in the in modern logic, there was this turn towards what's called meta-mathematics and meta-logic. So what that is, is uh, you have a reasoning practice, mm. and uh, now you describe that in the terms of a formal system, right? So a formal language with a certain grammar, a set of inference rules, which is totally specified, and so on. And then you look at that system, and you discover it has certain properties and so on, which was exactly what you needed for foundations of mathematics, because, say, if like what the great people like Hilbert and so on wanted, say they wanted to show that arithmetic was consistent, say, mm-hmm. right? It had no contradictions, right? So, so of course, it's a certain word. Well, then you first have to say, what is arithmetic? Well, sociologically, arithmetic is an activity by a certain group of mathematicians, <laughs> an activity which is even historically changing. Yeah. But about that, of course, there's no guarantee that it's ever going to be consistent because you don't know. Heaven knows what they will do in 30 years from now. <laughs> so you define arithmetic as a formal system mm. and that you prove things about it. But then what happened was that in teaching logic, we've taken over that methodology. So that when you teach, say, propositional logic, reasoning with not, and, or, if, then, it's done in the form of a system. And often the emphasis is totally on that system. Now, note that this totally different even from how you would teach mathematics. Mm. Suppose that I want to teach you uh, some algebra. Mm. I'm not going to give you a system of axioms and rules and so on. Working away, I'm teaching you some useful equations. I'm building up a skill set, a style of thinking, but never in that whole algebra course Am I going to give you a formal system? Mm. I may not even be totally clear about the symbols. I introduce the symbols as I need them. Mm. In fact, this is even a complaint of mathematicians about logic courses. They don't understand how it works. Like, I remember a colleague of mine who said, Johan, come on, I'm, I'm a, you know, in geometry. I think my thinking is as clear as yours. But never in my life have I actually said, this is the, lang- the formal language of this course. So, so, so that formal systems emphasis is a barrier. I actually think they should come at the end, not at the beginning. Mm. They should come when you need them to pr- prove something general at a high level about the whole thing. But first, uh, uh, so I, I am thinking about how long, uh, you know, whether one could turn these things uh, around, because that's already a big, mm. a, a big barrier. Other barriers I'm not so worried about. For instance, um, <coughs> of course, at the moment, uh, this audiences. I usually get two objections from audiences. So one is that um, the natural language expressions don't quite mean what you have in a logic course. Mm. But that's not a problem because you can get the general audience to see the virtue of abstraction. So, for instance, take an example. Take the word "and." Of course, in natural language, "and" usually means "and then." So already this logical idea that A and B is the same as B and A feels strange Mm. to many people, Mm. right? Like, say, uh, uh, undressing, 
and going to bed doesn't seem to be the same as going to bed and undressing, mm. right? <laughs> and <clears throat> but that's okay because then it, 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 what you can explain is yes, that's true, but there is this abstract end which has its own structure, which is also not absent from natural language. You can give examples that we actually have. Let's first understand that. Mm. Let's then get into a discussion about what's the additional features of this consecutive end. So that's not, not necessarily a, a problem. Uh, so that's one objection I often get, but soon you get into a sort of interesting discussion about that. And the other objection I usually get is, uh, this is from general audiences, not in academia, uh, that um, logic is against emotion. Oh. So what a typical question you can always uh, expect at the end of a public session about logic is that people say, look, but you're claiming that everything is directed towards clarity and precision and what follows, but life is about emotions. Like I did an interview with a radio journalist once, unfortunately, just as we're talking now. Mm. So we in this, this, this is national studio. <laughs> we had a conversation afterwards. He said, well, I've, I've asked the questions. Uh, you, you probably wanted to answer a few and, uh, and so on. He said, can I now tell you what I really think? <laughs> I'm a parliamentarian uh, uh, reporter mostly. Yeah. And I think all this talk about conclusions and consistency in politics means nothing. The only thing is, who do I like, who don't I like? So I think that's purely emotional. You also choose your political affiliation, just what's the sort of group I like to belong to. Yeah. And of course, in Parliament, people say things like premise, premise, conclusion. That's just fake, mm. you know, because the conclusions were there emotionally. The, 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 the logic is just that. So he says, that's my concept. So in other words, he says, it's nice what you do. It has nothing, nothing to do with anything in real life. Now, my view would be, but this is, again, you can get into discussion, is uh, that's not true. These things work together. So I don't see any opposition between logic and emotion because mm. it's true. Everything we do is, of course, takes place against the background of emotion. I think that's just a fact. You can't deny that. Take this conversation. If I hadn't liked you, mm. to some extent, mm. don't you agree? We, we could have run the same script. Yeah. It would be different. If yeah. you don't resonate with... Uh, uh, mm. <clears throat> and this is true for every language use. So even though in our logical models we ignore that, and we talk about what information is passed and so on. So this sort of like emotion of logic or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's so I think that makes it volatile to some degree, right? That's no, so no, because what you could say is, uh, no, I don't think so. So first, there is a somewhat mysterious phenomenon, which I think, again, we don't understand yet, uh, even for pure information transfer or even for pure mathematical proof to succeed. Often, emotion plays a role. And I could imagine how that works, you know, I could speculate how that works in the brain. Good examples also in mathematical proof. If you are a mathematician, you present a proof to your audience. Mm. Of course, a lot of that depends on, maybe that's not emotional, but self-confidence. Whether you feel that the seminar you're presenting it to is supportive mm. or not, and, 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 and so on. But that doesn't mean that, therefore, these inferences themselves are shaky. No, you can also test them by logical means, mm. but your ability to produce them at the right moment in the right way could be influenced by emotion. You also have the, the felt importance of 
a theorem. You're not going to. Of course, uh, of course. And the other aspect is that I, you know, but it's entangled in more ways. Uh, another aspect is uh, that I think uh, was also quite possible is that emotions. It's not just that emotions underlie. Uh, rational, logical functioning, by the way, also philosophical functioning, because what I say about logic is, of course, uh, just as well true about a, a philosophical uh, uh, conversation. But it's also the other way around. I think, uh, you know, logical inferences can trigger emotions, because sometimes there's something you actually see rationally, but it unleashes an emotion. So... I once had on the, 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 this was Radio Amsterdam, and it was a sort of open. Don't think I have interviews all the time. That's not true. But they, they are just high points in my life, like <laughs> this one. And uh, Radio Amsterdam does it like this. They, they talk with you um, for about half an hour. Then they have half an hour open yeah. questions from the audience. And that... Um, uh, and then th th there was a, a woman who, at the end of the, the open session, who again came with this question, which of course I recognize. So she said, Mr. Van Bentham, uh, you, you sound like a nice person, yeah, <laughs> emotional. Always a good start, right? <laughs> but, you know, like, uh, you know, life is, let's face it, uh, life is emotion, <laughs> you know. So she said, can you, and, but then she made a mistake because she said, can you give me any example where logic would have any relevance to emotion? And I, I said, I had a flash of inspiration. I said, okay, suppose that your husband comes home this evening with lipstick on his collar. Then you quickly get, draw a logical conclusion <laughs> and then you become extremely emotional. <laughs> but you first you need this conclusion, otherwise you won't have the emotion. <laughs> so I was yeah, proud yeah. of this example. Yeah, yeah. She's silent for a moment and then she says, Professor Van Bentham, this only proves your irrelevance. My husband would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so then I said, I would give my view of one. <laughs> That's a good argument. That was a great piece of actual. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's very interesting. And we also want to thank uh, Lam Studio for the possibility to record the part there. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.